Amen. Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21, verse 33. That's where our passage will begin today as we continue to walk through the book of Exodus together. Uh, If you're new to Bloomfield Baptist, we've been spending some time studying the book of Exodus. We studied at at length one of the most familiar passages in the book, uh, Exodus chapter 20, where God gives His people the Ten Commandments. And then what we find after that is the people are still gathered there around Mount Sinai, but they respond to God's word in fear. And so they have a mediator, Moses, who goes before them on their behalf to God. And then God is giving further instruction to Moses for God's people. And so where we're picking up today is he is giving them laws and regulations on how they are to live as a people as they prepare to go to the land of Canaan, to the promised land. And so we've already seen him give them laws about uh, how they should worship. We've seen him give them laws about uh, servants and indebtedness and what happens when someone's indebted to someone and becomes their servant. Uh, Last week we looked at a very familiar passage to many of us, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and we talked about how God gives laws about justice and about retribution. And today, as Pastor Nick mentioned earlier, we're going to pick up in the text as God gives Moses laws about restitution to give his people. Uh, This text, as we read it, uh, many of these things will sound uh, very unfamiliar. Uh, They will not sound like situations that you and I encounter on a daily basis. But I hope that as we read God's Word this morning, you'll consider the bigger picture of what is it that God is saying to His people that might still apply to us today. What is He teaching His people about their relationship with Him? And what is He teaching His people about their relationship with one another? And I think those, those broader questions will help us to draw some application from this text today. So if you're able to, out of reverence for God's Word, if you would stand as I read it for us this morning, uh, beginning there with Exodus 21.33, and we're going to read down through Exodus 22.15. And this is what the Holy Word of God says to us today. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, The owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox." and the dead beast shall be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. 
if a fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stack grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it's for an ox or for a donkey or for a sheep or for a cloak or for any kind of lost thing of which one says this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. And the one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution, but if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it's torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. If you would pray with me. Father God, we come to a passage that may be very unfamiliar to many of us. We come to a passage that may be one that we have just read quickly over in the past, assuming that it had some practical application for those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, but not really for us today. But we come to a text today that is part of your inspired word. We come to a text today that, like all of your word, is profitable for us. So, Lord, would you help us to find that profit as we study it today, to learn more about the gospel and how it applies to our life as we look to your word today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, before we get into the, the details about digging pits and stealing donkeys, uh, it's important for us to remember kind of the, the bigger picture of what we're looking at here in the book of Exodus. Uh, back before we started studying the Ten Commandments, I shared with you that there are different types of laws in the Old Testament. Different types of laws that govern God's people. And it's worth revisiting that in order to better understand how these things apply to us today. Now, we talked about how there is a moral law. The moral law is the righteous and eternal standard for our relationship with God and with others. The moral law in the Old Testament is the law that then follows through to the New Testament. As we look to the Ten Commandments, we talked about how that's God's moral law. Those things have not changed. We still should not murder. And in fact, when Jesus talks about the, the moral law, the Ten Commandments in the New Testament, He actually raises the bar of the moral law. And so we talked about how when God says you shall not murder, what that meant in the Old Testament, but how Jesus said, well, if you've called somebody a fool in your heart, you, you've murdered. And so God raises that bar. He, he doesn't do away with it. So the moral law stands. But there's other types of laws that are used temporarily. They're used for a time among God's people. They don't stand like the moral law. So, for example, there's the ceremonial law. 
Uh, the ceremonial law teaches God's people in the Old Testament how they're to approach God and how they're to worship God. We've seen some of this already when we saw the laws about altars. Well, we'll see more of this as we look into the tabernacle. God gives all these stipulations on how His people are to approach Him, to worship Him. And those things were used during a time for a purpose. They were based in the moral law, but they were different. So we don't function under those same ceremonial laws today. And the same is true with the civil law. God gave the civil law to His people. It was based in the moral law, but it was to teach them how they were to live as a people. Now the major difference between God's people during this time in the book of Exodus and God's people today is that this time God's people were a nation state. And so God was governing them civilly. God's people today are not a nation state. We are a people who are spread out among many nations. We operate under many civil laws. So there are Christians in other nations and other places in the world that live under a different civil law than we live under here in the United States. We have different civil laws given by our governments. Now God is still sovereign over those things. We see that in the New Testament. God is sovereign over all authority. But now we see how God rules His people and His church is through His Son, King Jesus. And so we are, are, are still governed by church discipline. We're governed by the Word of God. But these civil laws do not apply today. And so, for example, as we read here in Exodus 21 about uh, leaving a pit open and someone getting hurt or stealing and making restitution, it doesn't mean that there's no consequence for those things today. But those consequences are based in the civil government of where we live. And so the ceremonial law, the civil law, were temporary. They served a purpose. The moral law stands throughout God's word. But we still can learn from those things that were temporary. And we can still learn from these civil laws. We can learn what God gave them for, what the context of them was, and, and the points there we can then pull out and apply still today. And so that's what I want us to do as we consider this text that may seem at times a bit odd to some of us, that may seem a bit unusual. I still think there's things for us to learn and things to be reminded of. And we're going to look at three of those this morning, beginning with the first one that I put there in your notes. These restitution laws teach us personal responsibility. And what we see over and over again in these laws of restitution is that people are responsible for their actions. And there's a consequence for their actions, especially when it brings harm or brings loss to another person. And so God begins here by telling Moses that, that the, the people need to understand there in verse 33, if they dig a pit and they leave it uncovered and an animal falls into it, they're responsible for that. Now again, that might seem like a, an unusual situation to us. In fact, as I read it, I was reminded of something similar to it, though, uh, years ago. And when Sandy and I and our family were living down in Bowling Green, I was watching the news one night. And if you're familiar with Bowling Green, you know, north of there you've got Mammoth Cave. Well, in between Bowling Green and Mammoth Cave, there was a, a farmer who, who had a pretty large cattle farm there. And they were doing a story on him because some of his cattle started disappearing. And so initially he thought, well, well maybe I got a fence down somewhere or, or someone's breaking in here and they're, they're stealing some of my livestock. But as he looked into it further and they started examining the property and the land there, they found that there was actually a sinkhole that had opened up that led down into a cave. 
And so his cattle, one by one, as they went to that area of grace, they were dropping down a hole. And they were dropping into this cave. And that's how he was losing them. Well, here in God's Word, he's not saying that this is something accidental, that, that, that there's livestock disappearing because there's a sinkhole or the earth's opening up. He's saying, no, someone intentionally digs a pit. Now, this was very common in this day. And in fact, you recall probably other places in the Old Testament where we read about pits, and we've talked about those. That the pits were essentially cisterns. This is how they would store water and store things underground. They would cover those things up. So you remember Joseph? When Joseph was sold as a slave by his brother, they, they found a pit, they threw him into a pit. Well, here God says, listen, when you dig a pit, you need to cover that pit, because if you don't cover that pit, one of your neighbor's animals is going to walk along, is going to fall into that pit, and if that happens, you have been negligent. And there's a consequence, God says, for your negligence. You are personally responsible to make restitution. Then he gives other examples of how this might look there. In verse 35 and 36, talks about if one of your animals gets in a fight with one of your neighbor's animals and one of them dies, then essentially things like that might happen every once in a while. You're, you're going to split the loss there. You're going to sell the live animal. You're going to split that. You're going to divide up the dead animal. You're, you're going to both suffer the consequence of that. But... If your animal, as we saw this last week, if your, your livestock there, your ox, if it was prone to do stuff like that, if it was one that you didn't keep uh, away from others because you knew it was prone to do this, then you're responsible, you're negligent, you're liable. He goes on to talk about other things. Verse 5 there in chapter 22 says, if you've got your, your livestock out there grazing and they eat your neighbor's property, their field, their vineyard, then you're negligent, you're responsible. And then, notice there in verse 6, he says, if, if a fire breaks out. So essentially what he's saying here is if you're, you're burning off some debris, some thorns, but you're not careful, and then that spreads to your neighbor and gets into his grain and gets into to his harvest and destroys that, well, well, then you're responsible. You're negligent and you're held personally responsible. So what are we to take from this today? <laughs> I mean, certainly there, there could be some practical application. You know, if you're digging a hole, cover the hole. If, probably shouldn't be lighting fires either way, but if you don't do it by your neighbor's grain bins, there's little things you might pull out of it like that. But, but I think there's a, a bigger picture here that if we're not careful, we completely miss it. And the bigger picture is this. We need to accept responsibility for our actions. We need to accept responsibility for the things we do. And in the bigger picture, the bigger context of God's Word, I believe God is giving this instruction to Moses for the people because God knows the heart of His people. In fact, think of the man He is talking to. He is talking to Moses who at times has struggled with personal responsibility. You think all the way back to our study there in Exodus 2. At that point, Moses was being raised in the household of Pharaoh. And Moses is out one day, and I believe at this point the text would indicate he knows his heritage, he knows he's a Hebrew, and so it enrages him when he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave. And so he decides he's going to intervene, he's going to jump in, he's going to exercise justice, and he kills that Egyptian. Do you remember what he did? He didn't accept responsibility. In fact, he dug a pit. <laughs> And he covered his pit. 
because he was covering up the body of this Egyptian that he had killed. And he didn't go at that point and say, this is what I've done, I'm responsible. No, he was confronted on it, and then he ran and he got out of town. He did not take responsibility for his sin. And perhaps Moses is even thinking through these things as he's hearing God give this law to the people. And God is telling him, listen, you need to have this concern for your neighbor's livestock. Maybe Moses is thinking back to a day when he didn't have that concern for another human being. So God is telling him something that he knows his people are going to need. But, but it goes far beyond Moses. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. And you remember when Adam and Eve sinned, how they responded to that? That they tried to cover themselves? And then when God confronted them on their sin, you remember what Adam said? Say, well, God, well, this, this is her fault. <laughs> Aren't you glad we don't struggle with that in marriage anymore? You know? And then Adam goes a step further. Well, God, it's not just her fault. It's your fault because you gave her to me. <laughs> because you know, one person Adam doesn't blame for his sin? Himself. Good thing we've moved beyond that, isn't it? Now, there's, there's another prime example of this, and it's your mirror and mine. And every time we look in it, we see a, a primary example of what it looks like not to take personal responsibility. But because our temptation is the same as Adam's, our temptation is the same as Moses's, our temptation is the same as those who came before us and those will come after us. Our temptation is to blame others. Our temptation is to do everything we can not to take responsibility for what we've done. In fact, uh, nobody has to teach us this. <laughs> I, I can remember, I have no idea how old I was. I was a young man. My mom might remember the details, but uh, one day I was playing with a baseball in our front yard and we had a storm door on the front of our house. You remember this? And I thought it would be a good idea to throw a baseball at a storm door. So just a side note here, kids. If this is the only thing you hear this morning, it's not a good idea to throw a baseball at a storm door. Well, I learned that lesson. Because as I kept throwing that baseball harder and harder and harder again, what happens to glass when you hit it hard with a baseball? Something breaks. It's not the baseball. <laughs> that the glass broke. And so, of course, my immediate thought when I did that was, man, I, I can't wait till my parents get home so I can tell them exactly what I did. <laughs> I better write down all the details, a full confession here to make sure I don't leave anything out. Now, I started thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to tell them? You know, somebody drove by and threw a baseball at our house. You won't believe the size of the bird that flew into that storm door and just shattered the whole thing. You know? There was an earthquake in our neighborhood. I don't know what story I came up with. It was probably a combination of those things. But I'm pretty sure my first thing wasn't to say, well, let me tell you exactly what I did wrong. No, nobody taught me that. Nobody teaches you that. that. That's the inclination of our heart. It's to hide from our sin. And rather than to expose our sin, we want to cover our sin. Rather than deal with our sin, we want to blame others for our sin. But we do everything but take personal responsibility. 
And I think a point that we can all learn from this passage is that God, as He is taking His people out of Egypt, as He is taking Egypt out of His people, as He's calling them to the land of promise, He's given them this law for a reason because He wants His people to be a people who represent Him. And He wants His people to be a people who take responsibility for their actions. And notice He is talking about some minute details here. So He wants this to be clear. He wants them to be responsible and friends that's exactly what the gospel of jesus christ calls us to today the gospel of jesus christ calls us not to cover our sin but to have our sin exposed and that's a scary thought isn't it i don't think there's a person in this room who if i gave you the opportunity to come up to this microphone today and said hey listen i I just need a little favor this morning. We, we've got a little time to kill. Uh, do you mind to come up here and just share with us every wicked thing you've ever thought or done? Just, you know, five, ten minutes. Give you five bucks. I, I wouldn't do it for a lot more than five bucks. You know, there's stuff that goes through our minds that we would be ashamed if anybody ever knew it went through our minds. Our, our sin nature is a, a wicked thing. There's darkness there. And what the scripture says is what the gospel does is it shines light in the darkness. And and our natural inclination is to flee from the light. But through the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ, He calls us into the light. And so when we come into the light, our sin is exposed. Here's the good thing there. It's not getting up in front of a microphone in front of a church and talking about how bad we are. It's standing before a holy God who already knew how bad we were. Who actually knows better than we do how bad we are. And who still says to us, if you confess your sins, I'm faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Stand before a holy God with the burden of our sin and through the gospel of Jesus Christ, He lifts that burden off of us. See, He placed that burden on the cross of Christ and Jesus died there for our burden and our sin. And the gospel reminds us that we need not run from responsibility, but we stand before a holy God and we say, yes, indeed, I am a sinner. I've done these things. And then we thank God for His grace and mercy. That He demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, His Son, Christ Jesus our Lord, died for those sins. Hear this. If you struggle to take responsibility for your sin before man, that is an indication that you've never taken responsibility for your sin before God. And you can talk your way out of all kinds of things before your fellow man. You cannot talk your way out of it before a holy God. That there will not be a bartering conversation one day in heaven when you say to God, but let me give you my resume. Well, what about all these good things I did? The Scripture has a term for those good works we did. It says they are filthy rubbish. You see, compared to a holy God, we, we, we can't do good. But empowered by a holy God, 
Well, then it's all different. And so the gospel call isn't for us to clean up and shape up and look better and get our act together and get on our Sunday best and come in here and smile and how was your week and how was great, how was your all is great and everything's great. When it wasn't great and it's not great. Now, the gospel call is to stand before God and take responsibility. Lord, I, I am a wretched sinner. But I believe Jesus Christ died on that cross for my wretched sin. And I believe, as we sang earlier, one day we will feast in the house of Zion and we will not cry or mourn or grieve anymore. We will be in the presence of our Lord. Not because of what we've done, but because of what He's done. But you don't get there if you can't ever take responsibility for anything. And I think that's what God's trying to teach His people here. He's laying the foundation, but not just that point too here. That the restitution laws remind us that we need to trust in God. We need to trust in Him. So, so God shifts here from talking about, okay, if you're negligent, you need to make restitution. And then what might seem like a little bit of a jump for us there in Exodus 22, He starts to say, now if you steal from someone, you need to make restitution. Now we live in a culture and in a context now where if someone steals something from us, especially if someone steals quite a bit and steals from others, our expectation is that they're going to jail. That they're going to go to prison. In fact, I have this little way in my head of remembering the Ten Commandments. And so for me, the Eighth Commandment, you shouldn't steal. Those are prison bars. <laughs> Don't steal. You're going to end up in jail. That's how I think about it. But you notice here, nowhere in Exodus 22 does God say, now if you steal, you're going to jail. There are no prisons on the road to Canaan. There are no jails in this context. But that doesn't mean there's not consequence. And so what God does is He then outlines for His people, here are the consequences for various types of theft. And so verse 1, if a man steals livestock, he makes restitution. Now notice there, He says, if he steals an ox, he's got to give five ox. And if he steals a sheep, he's got to give four sheep. I'm not a math major. But that's different, isn't it? And I think there's a reason for the difference there. Because an ox was used among the people, among these shepherds. That, that was their tractor. <laughs> That was what they needed for their livelihood. That's how they broke the ground and plowed the field. That, that was their, their work, what they used for work. And so what God, I think, is saying here is you're, you're not just stealing a man's property. You're stealing his ability to provide for his family. I mean, yeah, these other things are important. A sheep is important. You're going to pay back fourfold for that, but you're going to pay more for this because you've not just taken something that was his. You've taken his ability to provide for his family. And so you've got to make restitution four times, five times. There's consequences for these actions. And he goes on to talk about different types of theft. Verses 2 through 4 there. And he says if you break into a home, literally that phrase breaking in is digging through. And you remember in the context here, we're not talking about you know, picking someone's lock. <laughs> now they literally would dig through a mud wall to break into someone's house or they would dig through the ceiling to break into their house. You remember that story that we read in the New Testament? The friends wanted to bring, bring their, 
their friend before Jesus. They, they dug through a roof and dropped him down in front of Jesus. So that, that's the context here, this type of housing, similar at least. And so what God's saying is that if, if that happens, and I think the, the indication here based on what comes next is it's at night, and you don't know why somebody's breaking in, you don't know what's going on, and you don't know if they're there to, to kill somebody, they're there to harm you or your family. If in that context, in that defense, you end up killing that person, you're not held liable for that. But if it's, if it's daytime, and you can kind of see what's going on there, and you realize that they're actually there just to rob you, you, you don't kill somebody for trying to rob you. There's consequence for that, but what God's saying here is, is very different than what we see in many other contexts in the culture this time, where you would see penalties for, well, if you take something from someone, then we're going to cut your hand off. If you take someone from someone, we're, we're going to take your life. No, no, what God says here is, listen, if, if they steal, there's going to be a consequence. In fact, he says that, that if they don't have any money, then they're going to get sold for the theft. That goes back to what we studied in those laws of servanthood, of slavery, that, that people would in, indebt themselves and then they would go into an indebted servitude. So this, this person, this thief, chances are if they're breaking in your house and digging through your wall, they don't have much. So they're going to have to pay that back through their service through what the Old Testament here will refer to as slavery. They're sold into that slavery. But, but all that to say that there's consequence for their actions. They have to make retribution. So again, the question for us is the same. What, what can we learn from these restitution laws? I would say it's not a good idea to break into somebody's house at night or in the day. In Kentucky, you'll probably get shot either way there. There, there are things here we can practically apply, but, but the big picture is what? The big picture is, don't steal. Hey, it goes back to the Eighth Commandment, where God teaches, remember, Eighth, bars, prison? Eighth Commandment, don't steal. And remember what we studied when we studied the Eighth Commandment? Is that stealing is a sin against others because you're taking their stuff, but stealing is also a sin against God because you're not trusting in God to provide what you need. And so ultimately when we steal, we are making a statement before man and before God that we don't trust God for provision. That we don't trust God to provide for us. That we've got to make another way for ourselves. I read this commentator back when we studied this commandment. I'll read it again. In reference to the Eighth Commandment, he said this, Every theft is a failure to trust in God's provision." Whenever we take something that doesn't belong to us, we deny that God has given us or is able to give us everything we truly need. Therefore, keeping the Eighth Commandment is a practical exercise of our faith in God's providence. And remember in that commandment, we talked about how stealing isn't just when you break in someone's house. There are all types of ways in our culture today that we steal. And they've almost become so ordinary. We, we, we steal when we work out a, a business arrangement and a business deal so that we profit more than we really should. 
we steal when in business. We arrange things so that, so that someone else doesn't get what they really should for their money so that we can get more, where we get more and they get less. We steal when we do our taxes and we underreport what we received and we overestimate those deductions. I don't know about you, but you know, when you do your deductions and you itemize it and it asks you what those clothes were worth, you dropped off at Goodwill. That was a pretty nice shirt. That was a Sunday preaching shirt, you know. And so what are we tempted to do? We're, we're tempted to say, well, it's worth this, and then I can get this deduction. Every theft is a failure to trust in God's provision. Whenever we take something that doesn't belong to us, we deny that God has given us or is able to give us everything we truly need. We kind of fudge those business reimbursements. We shift things around so that, that, that we come out ahead because we got to look out for ourselves, don't we? And the Scripture says what? It says there's someone greater than you and I who is looking out for us, friend. That there's somewhere far more able than you and I to provide. And every time we steal or we, we arrange things in any way close to that, we are not trusting in God and these laws of restitution as they deal specifically with theft I think are a reminder to God's people and a reminder for us today his people that we need ultimately to trust in him and that doesn't just apply to material things it applies to all things I find myself often having conversations with people that are hurting and what I found time and time again in my life and in others lives is when we're hurting when we're we're grieving when we're suffering and some of you you've been there you've heard me say this exact thing is that in those times we we tend to either run closer to God or run further away from God but we don't stay still we tend either in those moments of grief and suffering to, to grow in our trust for God and to cry out for God. We might not understand it, but we know He does. And we tend to grow deeper in our relationship with the Lord through our personal suffering. Or we, we use that as an excuse to just get further away. Well, if God is sovereign and He allowed this, I don't want to have anything to do with Him. We might not say it that way, but we live it that way. And in the midst of our crisis, whether it's a financial one or, or something that has nothing to do with money, but it's just suffering and death and disease and sickness and, and relationships and all these things that might grieve, bring grief and mourning and suffering in our life, whatever it might be, God's call on us is this, we are to trust in Him. Proverbs chapter 3, 5, and 6, I think, is a familiar passage to some of us. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. 
But there's another important verse that follows it in verse 7. It says this, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And I think if you're going to read 5 and 6, you've got to read 7 because there's a connection here. You see, if we don't trust in Him, we are by default trusting in ourselves. And when we don't trust in God, then we are being wise in our own eyes. We are saying we know better than the sovereign God of the universe. Therefore, I will trust in me. And where does that lead us? says, don't be wise in your own eyes. For your Lord, turn away from evil. That leads us into all types of wickedness. And it leads us further and further and further away from God and His truth. And I think what God is doing here is He's talking to a people. I mean, my goodness, they've suffered, haven't they? There were a lot of graves back in Egypt. That there were generations born into slavery, who died in slavery. There was extreme loss and suffering there. And now God is calling His people to this land of promise. And on the way to that land, He's saying, you, you need to trust in Me. You, you don't need to steal because you need to trust in Me. And we need to trust in Him as well. In him as well. Point three, the restitution laws show us how to love our neighbor. That this final section of restitution laws deals with really just keeping other people's stuff for them or borrowing stuff for them. I, I won't go into all the details this morning because of time, but essentially in this culture, in this context, if you were going to go away on a journey, on a trip, you, you didn't just leave your stuff. <laughs> you left your stuff with someone. There's no banks, there's no safety deposit boxes, there's no iron gates with locks, there's no security systems, there's no fancy little uh, cameras on your doorbell that when someone rings it, their picture pops up on your phone. Now what people would do is, I, well, we're going to, so hey, well neighbor, will you watch my herd? Will you take care of my stuff until I get back? Well, there could be problems with that. And so God's outlining these problems. Well, listen, if, that, if you do that and, and something happens to your outside, it gets stolen, they're responsible, there needs to be restitution. If they say it gets stolen, but there's no thief to be found, well, then you've got to ask the question, did they do something to it? You know? And they're just not willing to admit it. And so he goes through all these different situations regarding your stuff and, and putting it in the care of others and ultimately how that has to come before God to judge, which he did that through his judges, his elders... And then he talks about instructions about borrowing. You know, if you, if you borrow your neighbor's livestock and they die, you've got to make restitution for that. So again, what, what, what does this have to do with us today? I, I think there's practical application. You know, you borrow somebody's stuff and it breaks, you need to find something else. But, but I think there's more here about how we're to treat our neighbor and view our neighbor. Ligon Duncan said it this way. He said, this, this set of laws not only requires us to refrain from the physical act of stealing someone else's property, it also requires us to take care of that which belongs to our neighbor. It requires us to look out for the interest of our neighbor, especially regarding his material property, domestic animals, all that's under his care. To look out for the interest of our neighbor. Does that sound familiar at all? 
See, friends, what the Scripture teaches us is this isn't just an application for your neighbor that lives on the other side of the road. The application here, I think, specifically for us is the neighbor who's on the other side of the pew right now. That this is our covenant community. This is our family. This is our household of faith. And what the Scripture says is we as a family, we are to love God and we are to love one another. We are to care for one another. We're to be concerned for one another. In fact, the Scripture says we're to have a greater concern for others than we are ourselves. And so that's where I want to leave us this morning is with a passage that teaches that very thing. And so before we pray, let me just read this to you and perhaps allow the Spirit to work through it. I pray that He does. Philippians 2. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, the Scripture says one day every knee will bow. And you will either bow in praise before a holy God because you have accepted the responsibility that you're a sinner and because you have trusted in the promises of the Gospel and you have believed and so you have sought then to love God and to love your neighbor and to love others. And one day you will, you will bow and praise and thanksgiving because there's no more sin and there's no more suffering and there's no more grief and there you are with your King in glory. Or you're going to bow in judgment. And you're going to bow under the wrath of a holy God. And as you bow, there's not going to be any more time to make excuses. It's not going to be any presentation of what you felt were such good works that you did. And so as we leave this text this morning, I just want to leave with this question. Will you bow in praise before the King? Or will you bow in judgment under the wrath of the King? Consider this as we stand and as we respond to God's Word. If you would, stand together as I pray. Father God, we do come before You thanking You for Your Word and for the reminder from it that You are a, a great and sovereign and gracious God. You call us to trust in You. You call us to trust in You to provide. You call us to trust in You in the midst of suffering. You call us to come before You acknowledging that we indeed are sinners. You tell us to confess our sins, that You're faithful and just to, to cleanse us from those things.
cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You call us to love you and to love others, but fundamentally, we often refuse to do any of those things because of our sin and our depravity. And yet, Lord, you tell us every day, every one of us, our knee will bow. So I pray, Lord, for those who have yet to bow before you now, have yet to confess you as Lord, that, that you would do a work in their heart through the power of your Spirit to call them to repentance and faith. And Lord, for those who have confessed you as Lord, but perhaps today are struggling to trust you, perhaps today are struggling to be responsible for what they've done, Perhaps we're struggling today to, to, to love you and love others. God, would you empower them through your spirit to live in obedience to your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.